This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the structures, barriers, and incentives standing between us and simpler, more fulfilling, happier, and more environmentally sustainable lives. Our clips today come from Sustainable Human on YouTube, Radio Who, What, Why, A Progressive Faith Sermon, The Minimalists Podcast, The Story of Stuff Project, and a TED Talk by Ari Wallach. And stick around to the very end for my final comments, containing a callback to one of my favorite analogies for understanding systems of power, oppression, and privilege, and to explain why something analogous to spandex is your most important tool to fight these systems. You're not going to want to miss that. The earth is full. It's full of us, full of our stuff, full of our waste, full of our demands. Our economy is now bigger than its host, our planet. What this means is our economy is unsustainable. When things aren't sustainable, they stop. Economic growth, it will stop because of the end of cheap resources. It will stop because of the uh, growing demand of us on all the systems of the earth. It is based on a crazy idea. The crazy idea being that we can have infinite growth on a finite planet. The earth doesn't care what we need. Mother Nature doesn't negotiate. She just sets rules and describes consequences. We tend to look at the world not as the integrated system that it is, but as a series of individual issues. We see the Occupy protest. We see spiralling debt crises. We see growing inequality. We see money's influence on politics. But we see, mistakenly, each of these issues as individual problems to be solved. In fact, it's the system in the painful process of breaking down. I could give you countless studies and evidence to prove this, but I won't because if you want to see it, that evidence is all around you. The crisis is now inevitable. The issue is, how will we react? Imagine our economy when the carbon bubble bursts, when the financial markets recognise that they have any hope of preventing the climate spiralling out of control. The oil and coal industries are finished. Imagine the Middle East without oil income, but with collapsing governments. 
Imagine China, India and Pakistan going to war as climate impacts generate conflict over food and water. Imagine our highly tuned just-in-time food industry and our highly stressed agricultural system failing and supermarket shelves emptying. Imagine 30% unemployment in America as the global economy is gripped by fear and uncertainty. Imagine what it means for your personal security as a heavily armed civilian population gets angrier and angrier about why this was allowed to happen. So how do you feel when the lights go out on the global economy in your mind? When your assumptions about the future fade away and something very different emerges? Just take a moment and take a breath and think, what do you feel? When we think about the kind of possibilities I paint, we should feel a bit of fear. We are in danger, all of us, and we've evolved to respond to danger with fear, to motivate a powerful response. We have achieved remarkable things since working out how to grow food some 10,000 years ago. Those people that have faith that humans can solve any problem, that technology is limitless, that markets can be a force for good, are in fact right. The only thing they're missing is that it takes a good crisis to get us going. When we feel fear and we fear loss, we are capable of quite extraordinary things. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, it just took four days for the government to ban the production of civilian cars and to redirect the auto industry. And from there to rationing of food and energy. Think about how a company responds to a bankruptcy threat and how a change that seemed impossible just gets done. Think about how an individual responds to a, a diagnosis of, of a life-threatening illness and how lifestyle changes that previously were just too difficult suddenly become relatively easy. We can transform our economy. The only thing we need to change is how we think and how we feel. I know the free market fundamentalists will tell you that more growth, more stuff, and nine billion people going shopping is the best we can do. They're wrong. Right? We can be more, we can be much more. We can choose this moment of crisis to ask and answer the big questions of society's evolution. Like, what do we want to be when we grow up? When we move past this bumbling adolescence where we think there are no limits and suffer delusions of immortality. Well, it's time to grow up to be wiser, to be calmer, to be more considered. Like generations before us, we'll be growing up in war. Not a war between civilizations, but a war for civilization. This could be our finest hour. online right now and Google pleasure and happiness, the, the definitions that you will see there will be almost identical because we have confused and conflated the two terms to, all, to mean virtually the same thing, but they're not.
they're actually quite different. And I'll give you the seven differences between pleasure and happiness right now. Number one, pleasure is short-lived. Happiness is long-lived. Pleasure is visceral. You feel it in your body. Happiness is ethereal. You feel it above the neck. Number three, pleasure is taking. Happiness is giving. Number four, pleasure is achieved alone. Happiness is usually achieved in social groups. Number five, pleasure can be achieved with substances. Happiness cannot be achieved with substances. Number six, the extremes of pleasure, whether it be substances or behaviors. So nicotine, alcohol, cocaine, heroin, sugar, or behaviors, uh, gambling, social media, internet, video games, porn, all in the extreme lead to addiction. Whereas there's no such thing as being addicted to too much happiness. And finally, number seven, pleasure is dopamine and happiness is serotonin. So two different neurotransmitters, two different areas of the brain, two different receptors, two different regulatory pathways. So you say to me, like, uh, who cares? Big deal. Uh, They both feel good. I want them both. Well, so pleasure is the, the feeling, this feels good, I want more. And happiness is, this feels good, I don't want or need anymore. So they are not the same. And knowing the difference is super important. What do you see, now, what do you see as fundamentally different today with respect to the way this is being used to further addict us to things? You know, back in the, in the late 1950s, there was a book by, by a guy named Vance Packard called The Hidden Persuaders that talked about the way that marketing was being used. We would refer to it today. You would refer to it today to sort of hack into our brains. What's different Absolutely. in terms of the way it's being done today beyond the fact that we understand the mechanism that's at play? Well, you bring up a very good question. What is the difference between marketing and propaganda? Marketing is using information to espouse your point of view. Propaganda is using disinformation to espouse your point of view. The difference is the truth. If you're telling the truth, it's marketing. If you're telling a lie, it's propaganda. Point is, propaganda does things to our brain because what it does is it gives us a dopamine boost. It makes you zealous. It increases your zealotry, whether it be for any specific political point of view or any specific religious point of view or any specific material consumption point of view. Ultimately, those are all found in dopamine. Conversely, serotonin is the contentment neurotransmitter. Here's the problem. Dopamine is an excitatory neurotransmitter. So, Neurons want to be excited because, after all, that's why they have receptors in the first place. But neurons are fragile. They like to be tickled, not bludgeoned. Chronic dopamine overstimulation causes neuron cell death. Now, you don't want that. So neurons have a plan B. They have a self-defense mechanism. What they do is they downregulate the number of receptors. So in human terms, what this means is You get a hit, you get a rush, receptors go down, next time you need a bigger hit to get the same rush, 
and then a bigger hit, and a bigger hit, and a bigger hit, until finally you get a huge hit to get nothing. That's called tolerance. And then when the neurons actually start to die, that's called addiction. But serotonin is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. It doesn't downregulate its own receptor. It doesn't need to. So you can't overdose on too much happiness. But there's one thing that downregulates serotonin, dopamine. So the more pleasure you seek, the more unhappy you get. And when we are propagandized by industries for their purposes to activate our dopamine, we fall into the perpetual abyss of addiction and depression. Based on the pastoral work we had been doing over the years, we had been invited to work with a local peace-building organization. Our efforts focused first on supporting the development of a research-based, culturally appropriate training curriculum addressing family conflict and violence, and second, on providing training and services in conflict transformation, nonviolent action, and mindfulness practices. While we were there, we again lived what most Americans would consider a very simple lifestyle, but the context had changed. We had felt it before in our travels to work in other countries, but living in Cambodia stripped away any last illusions we might have had that what we were doing was somehow noble. It's no secret that much of the ecological devastation and human exploitation are hidden from most middle and upper class eyes in the United States. Among the poor, more is revealed, and living among the global poor confronts you with uncomfortable realities. You understand viscerally, and not just statistically, at just what cost we obtain our favorite clothes, electronics, foods, and other items that fill our time, our homes, our closets, our storage sheds, and even our dreams. We've been back here in Missouri since 2010, and I can affirm that it is challenging to live and work for change here in the direction of a sustainable and just world. There are many barriers to simple lifestyle changes and systemic change that moves at an even slower pace if it moves at all. So I'm sharing all this to emphasize that our decisions have always been and must always be works in progress. Learning to live simply and sustainably, both as individuals and as a society, with attention to social and ecological justice, is a practice that must evolve with our circumstances, with our understanding and abilities, with our convictions and aspirations, with our vision, and with an ever-broadening scope to that vision. It is a practice that must deal honestly with our limitations and with the terrible and heartbreaking truth that I was not born merely into a world of gardens of abundance and beauty, that my life has also been bound up with the destruction of this earth that I love and of the people who could otherwise be my friends and neighbors. For our actions and for justice to be authentic and effective, they must deal honestly with the ways people, including those of us in the United States, benefit from the environmental destruction and human exploitation around the world, and especially with the ways that white folk have benefited and continue to benefit from the ransacking of the Earth's resources and profit from the bodies and blood of fellow human beings. 
I know it can feel difficult to criticize a system that has brought more comfortable standards of living to many people, and we can quickly become defensive of our own enjoyment of favorite conveniences, pleasures, and luxuries. But that is exactly why we must bring our attention to these issues, because our defensiveness cannot be allowed to shield us from the reality that our consumption has been both unbalanced, creating heaven on earth for the few and varying degrees of hell on earth for the many, and unsustainable, extracting, consuming, polluting, and destroying at a pace that threatens the future of countless species on earth, including us humans. Just how intense has the situation become? The World Wildlife Federation's Living Planet Index that measures the health of forests or oceans, freshwater, and other ecosystems shows that there has been a 35% decline in Earth's ecological health since 1970. In case you think you misheard that, let me say it again. That has been a 35% decline in the health of the Earth's ecosystems in less than 50 years. As these statistics hint, this decline has just exacerbated a system in which those who are most vulnerable to poverty are also at the most risk to the environment, the impacts of environmental decline and destruction. That's why we read the, uh, from the wisdom lesson this morning, the, the quotation from Jess Zimmerman, who, who expressed, you've probably noticed that factories, power plants, and Superfund sites tend to cluster in communities already burdened with social stresses. It's a vicious cycle where being poor means your environment is terrible, and poverty plus the terrible environment makes you more sick, which in turn keeps you poor. It's this terrifying cycle of ecological and social injustice that caused the United Nations Development Program to release a report in 1998 called Consumption for Human Development. Although the numbers have changed, mostly for the worse, the conclusions are still relevant. To quote their report, today's consumption is undermining the environmental resource base. It is exacerbating inequalities, and the dynamics of the consumption, poverty, inequality, environment nexus are accelerating. If the trends continue without change, not with redistributing from high-income to low-income consumers, not shifting from polluting to cleaner goods and production technologies, not promoting goods that empower poor producers, not shifting priority from consumption for conspicuous display to meeting basic needs, Today's problems of consumptions and human development will worsen. But this isn't news, is it? I think it's a truism by now that we are using up the earth at an alarming rate. According to the 2014 report on, by the National Geographic's Green Dex, we know it. The percentage of consumers around the world who say they are concerned about environmental problems has been rising 5% from a 2012 survey, now at 61% of the population. We know this has happened. Further, since tracking began in 2008, sustainable consumer behavior has increased in nearly every country, suggesting consumer behavior across the world is improving, albeit slowly. But the survey, survey also revealed how stuck some consumers are. They wrote, more and more consumers are embracing local and organic foods and lightening their environmental footprint in the food category. Nearly all consumers believe that we need to change the way we produce and consume food in order to feed a growing population. And yet many, and many say that it is very important to know how and where their food is produced. Yet, relatively few people report that they do. Can you guess where the biggest sticking point is? The consumer behaviors in the United States still ranked as the least sustainable of all countries surveyed since the inception of the Green Decks. 
A 2012 reflection by Earth Talk and Scientific American noted that people living in the United States create 13 times as much ecological damage over the course of a lifetime than a person in Brazil, drain as many resources as 35 people in India, and consume 53 times more goods and services than someone from China. For this to happen, the growth rate of our consumption has had to outpace the growth of our population, and that is exactly what's happened. Between 1900 and 1989, the United States population tripled, while its use of raw materials grew by a factor of 17. With less than 5% of the world's population, the United States uses one-third of the world's paper, a quarter of the world's oil, 23% of the coal, 27% of the aluminum, and 19% of the copper. So if we want to live full, comfortable, beautiful human lives, and we want that kind of life to be available to everyone, we must move our culture from an orientation around conspicuous consumption to grateful contentment. And yet we are stuck in socioeconomic systems that assume that unlimited growth and insatiable consumption are virtues and that resist oversight of the impacts they create. Why is this so? Why is it so hard to make a dent in this problem? Our second wisdom lesson this morning came from Walter Wink's reflections in his book, Engaging the Powers, Discernment and Resistance in a World of Domination. I'm going to read it again. The pain of living a life so alienated from what is natural and pleasurable exacts a psychic cost, numbing. Most of us winners and losers alike are profoundly unable to grasp grasp the severity of our loss. Numbness in turn produces amnesia about what a fully human life could be like, and even a fear of remembering. We internalize the ethic of productivity, the constraints of patriarchy, the imperative of success, the drivenness of modern life, the obligations of machismo, the laws that prevent our achieving for ourselves what the powerful achieve at our expense. We become complicit. And so we have leave unopposed the world that injures us, restructuring ourselves to appease the powers we depend on, to achieve peace with the world we declare war on ourselves. Learning the art of simplicity is not easy, and I don't want to make it sound as if it is. Stressors in modern life often come right one right after another, especially for the poor. But we have to start somewhere if we want to build momentum that can provide space for all of us to thrive, live, and enjoy life. So as usual, I'm speaking first to those who have privilege, who have allowed marginalized communities to bear the burden both of suffering the ill effects of our insatiable consumption and the burden of acting for change to confront and change those patterns of consumption. We must proceed with the realization that a move towards simplicity and sustainability doesn't make us especially virtuous. We are simply rising to the level of basic human decency, recognizing that it's not sustainable, ethical, wise, or compassionate for our well-being to come at the cost of the well-being of others or at the cost of the earth. Because this is not about blame or guilt, but about honesty, responsibility, and mutual care and kindness. But we must also proceed with awareness of the easy ways we can become stuck 
For example, if we're really paying attention to our lifestyles, we'll realize that these unjust systems are very skilled at absorbing the impacts of our individual decisions. It can easily feel like and even be an exercise in futility. Whether intentional or not, unjust systems thrive on those feelings. Injustice benefits when in our frustration and exhaustion we never of never being able to accomplish enough, we break down into a cycle of despair asking, why bother? Alternately, we can become obsessed with our lifestyle choices, losing awareness and concern for the larger issues at stake. If we want to enact true and lasting change, we must keep our personal choices in dialogue with our communities and our world so that our choices become gateways to understanding and to action. This is why I consider these choices to be part of my reflective and spiritual practices, part of the praxis by which I can continuously learn from the world, act upon that learning, and then reflect, learn, and act again. All I can offer this morning are some of the principles that guide our own reflections and actions. And it would begin with doing less consuming less, buying less, eating less, using electronics less, driving less. By doing less, we immediately lessen our burden on the environment, while we also open up space and time in our lives for learning, reflecting, and acting in new ways. For me, this is involved into having habits like buying used goods whenever I can, eating a vegetarian diet, focusing on hobbies and volunteer activities that are free, and that bring me into relationship with other people. Second, do something slowly and mindfully each day. Be present and attentive with something or someone every single day. Simplicity requires skills in living intentionally, carefully, attentively, even lovingly. Often we're in such a rush to get through the little routines of life that we forget that life is actually made up of those moments. For me, this includes keeping a meditation practice, as well as doing normal things mindfully and with my full attention, whether it's drinking tea or brushing my teeth or playing a board game. And all these things, I remember that the world we envision, the world where true peace and justice is the norm and not the exception, will still be filled with these moments. We can get a taste of the world we are creating by bringing our attention to the moments that make up our days with the same kindness, wisdom, and gratitude that will make a new world possible and fill it with goodness and grace. Third, learn about what you consume so you can make conscious and intentional decisions about how to consume. Pick one thing a week or one thing a month or one big purchase you might make and find out answers to simple questions. Where does it come from? What are the human and environmental impacts? What business practices ease or exacerbate these impacts? How are the people who do the work treated? How much do they get paid? What differences are there between different companies? What would it take to do this or make this myself? Let the answer sink into your mind and into your decisions. For me, this inevitably loops back to buying less. The more I know about the true cost of most of what we buy, the less I want to buy it. In terms of fighting climate change, one of the most effective pieces of low-hanging fruit to start our shift to a renewable energy future is to sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than that of old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly 
indefinitely. To sign up, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best. If they don't service your area now, they have plans to come your way soon. So don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you may think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. Stripped of its formal slash aesthetic construct, the minimalism's message is this. You probably don't need that. That could be a new gadget or Nana's quilt taking up space in the basement of the too large home you pay a mortgage on. You don't need it if you have the money and you definitely don't need it if you don't. The stuff won't make you happy and chances are good that it will distract you from the parts of your life that do. As Dave Bruno wrote, Stuff is not passive. And here's my favorite line from the article. Stuff wants your time, attention, and allegiance. Mm. I think that's really important. Our stuff wants our time. It wants our attention. It wants our allegiance. But you know it as well as I do. Life is more important than the things we accumulate. The guys behind the movie, that's us. Yeah, that is (laughs) us. The guys behind the... Hey, we're those guys. uh, Alludes... uh, uh, the, the guys behind the movie that the writer alludes to, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, a.k.a. The Minimalists, both come from dirt poor homes. Uh, we were broke. This is a quote, I think, from me. We were broke, dead broke, food stamps and WIC and various other forms of intermittent government assistance, Joshua Fields Milburn said. Uh, their respective origin stories involve a pursuit and eventual attainment of money and material wealth. By age 19, I was making over $50,000 a year, twice as much as I'd ever seen mom bring home, but I was spending even more racking up credit card debt. I obviously needed the three M's in my life. Make more money, Milburn said. He and Nicodemus traveled the well-trodden path toward happiness via professional advancement, leading to increased stories of stuff and increased overhead debt and stress. And they also found out that that path led nowhere. Something, incidentally, the Times documented a few years ago in the op-ed piece, Living with Less, A Lot Less, by Graham Hill, who was also on our documentary. While the devotees of Marie Kondo might suggest minimalism is a patrician dalliance, there are plenty of people like Milburn and Nicodemus who came from modest means, people who arrive at minimalism after bottoming out on the pursuit of actualization through accumulation. And then he put a, this this uh, photo in here. You got to see it, Ryan. It's uh, it's an onion cover. <laughs> it says the top ten products to battle consumerism. Oh wow! <laughs> and and I, that that's where we always have to be, you know, skeptical, right? The where, onion is fake news, just yes. for those who aren't aware. Of, yeah. yeah, I think it. I thought it was alternative news. <laughs> 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 and. <clears throat> Uh, and yes, Kyle Shocker writes, the oppressive gospel of minimalism. Minimalism can be culturally appropriated by wealthy folks. Uh, first time something like that's happened, eh? Is, is what David wrote here. It can take on a dwell magazine slash a MoMA store sheen that obscures the essence of the movement, which is all about intentional subtraction. There are no purchases necessary to be a minimalist, and it's a good idea to be suspicious of anyone that says there are, and I think that's that was the 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 great way. And he he goes on even farther here about um, 
the biggest reason to go minimal. But I, I'd like to, to pause for a second and just say, yeah, let's be suspicious here. There are tools that will add value to your life. There are books and our documentary and uh, Joshua Becker and Leo Babalta's blogs and Courtney Carver and her uh, Simple Year course. I mean, there are things that can help you. Sure. But just don't think that you have to have anything to simplify your life. Yeah, I promise. Yeah, anyone listening to this right now, I promise you, uh, if you have a million dollars in the bank, there isn't like this magic thing that you can buy that's going to help you do yeah. the work. I right. Mean, yeah. Yeah. And the same thing that you might find uh, enlightenment in a particular book or going back all the way to the Stoics and reading some of that stuff. Th- those are experiences. And I think that's nice, but don't think you need a thing to simplify your life. I think it's one of the bigger problems with places like the container store. Yeah. People think they go there. I'm going to buy a bunch of things to organize my life. Well, that's part of the problem. The organizing is inherently problematic. And so David here uh, sums it up. He says, the biggest reason to go minimal, the talk of class politics and fetishization of minimalism. I got that word right first time. Nice. I, I, I just was reading it right here. I'm like, I'm not going to get the word fetishization right the first time I read it. The talk of class politics and fetishization of minimalism misses the biggest point. One that makes all those topics seem trivial. The planet is being ruined in our pursuit of more. A journal of industrial ecology study from earlier this year found household consumption is, quote, responsible for up to 60% of global greenhouse gas emissions and between 80 or 50 to 80% of total land, material, and water use. That's staggering. The uh, initiative, and, and so for me, uh, and, and I've said this before, but it's worth noting here. For me, environmentalism wasn't the, the core benefit of, of embracing a minimalist lifestyle, but it was a really nice benefit. If you consume less, you produce less waste. So even if you're not concerned about the environment, then you're still helping the environment by producing less waste. You're helping other, other people as well. Even if you don't, even if you don't buy into that, you don't believe in, in climate change or whatever. Producing less waste is still a good thing. Everyone, I think everyone can get on board with that, right? Um, okay, and uh, let's see here. Uh, an initiative called Earth Overshoot Day calculated that on August 8th, 2016, we began to use more from nature than our planet can renew in the whole year. If we are to even dream of keeping the planet habitable, David writes, we must stop consuming so much stuff. Uh, you can argue that holding onto excess old stuff shares much of the blame with the new stuff. And I thought this was an interesting point, Ryan. Holding onto the stuff shares part of the blame, right? The infrastructure for storing our stuff, our humongous suburban homes, the $22 billion storage industry we support are resource-hungry byproducts of our inabilities to let go of stuff. So we're, we're, we're facing other problems by our inability to let go. What minimalism does is makes this ecological imperative a choice rather than an imposition. And I think that's the important part. Often we'll, we'll hear people, yeah, I was forced to become a minimalist. Well, no, f- minimalism is about intentionality. You can't be forced into being intentional. I was forced into meditating. 
that's not meditation, mm, right? Yeah, right. Uh, now you may your circumstances may may force you to be more deliberate with the resources you have, and I I think that deliberate use is great. I'm sorry if some situation forced you into becoming more of a a a, a intentional person, but I'm grateful for that outcome if you are becoming more intentional, regardless of of your resources. And so it says, don't be afraid of having less because it's pretty great. That's what he's saying about minimalism. Minimalism says, don't be afraid of having less because it's pretty great. And it's not a BS message either. Ample research attests that the best things in life aren't things. And he has a link to the research there. That relationships and rich experiences and expressing gratitude for what we have are the hallmarks of a good life. And stuff, whether it's a new iPhone or your spoon collection, is just stuff. Minimalism can be seen as a realignment of priorities and a preparation for a world when we cannot have everything we need when we want it. But minimalism is not an act of sacrifice, or rather, it's no more of a sacrifice than removing a malignant tumor. Sure, it hurts at first, but it's really good for you to let you live a lot longer and happier life. You won't miss it. Do you have one of these? Of course not. This thing is five years old. Now everyone's got one of these. Can you imagine how much genius and focus it took to turn a music player into a handheld computer phone, GPS remote control for everything in life in just five years? Seriously, the thousands of people who made this thing had to solve thousands of problems that literally could not have been solved five years ago. That's what people can do when they're motivated to find solutions to problems. But the problems we've been busy solving are not the problems that most need solving. So much focus has gone into faster, cheaper, newer that we've actually lost ground on things like safer, healthier, and more fair. It's as if we're getting better and better at playing the wrong game. And in many ways, this system is a lot like a game, but with very high stakes. Just like a game, our economy was designed by people to get everyone to play by certain rules. And like a game, it comes with instructions telling us what the goal is. Think about the last time you played a new game. Remember? The first thing you did was find out what it means to win, and that guides every decision you make along the way. So naturally, the solutions most people are working on pursue this game's simple goal. And that goal is more. More money being spent, more roads being built, more malls being opened, more stuff. That's what economists call growth. So we take all the money spent on stuff that makes life better, and all the money spent on stuff that makes life worse, and we add it together into one big number called GDP. We're told that a bigger GDP means we're winning. So it's the number that thousands of rules and laws are designed to increase. But there's a big difference between more kids in school or more kids in jail, more windmills or more coal-fired power plants, more super-efficient public trains or more gas wasted in traffic jams, duh. But in this game of more, they're counted the same. Now, we can't change a game this dumb one rule or one player at a time. The problem is the goal itself. 
We need solutions that change that. What if we built this game around the goal of better? Better education, better health, better stuff. A better chance to survive on this planet. That's what we all want, right? So shouldn't that be what winning means? Changing the goal of the entire economy is a huge task. Of course, we can't do it all at once. But when we focus on game-changing solutions, we gradually make it possible for a new game to be played. To do that, we have to be able to tell the difference between a game-changing solution or just a new way to play that old game of more. For example, let's look at two solutions to one of the many problems we face today. The scourge of plastic packaging that everyone knows is a disaster for the planet, especially the oceans. And here are two groups of people with very different ideas of solutions to the plastics problem. These guys decide that enough is enough, and they start by launching a citizen campaign to ban the plastic bag in their community. These guys have a different solution. They start a business that gives people gift cards to buy stuff if they recycle their plastic waste. Both of these are happening right now, but only one of them changes the game. The gift card solution does keep some plastic out of landfills and incinerators, but it creates more plastic by encouraging people to buy more stuff. Even worse, it teaches that more consumption is the right reward for being a good citizen, making it even harder to think outside that old game box. The ban the bag solution is harder to achieve, but it's a game changer. Why? Well, by volunteering their time, these citizens are declaring that there's something more important to them than just earning and spending more. To win this campaign, these citizens are going to have to team up with forward-thinking businesses offering alternatives to throwaway plastic packaging. They're going to have to build power to fight back against the American Chemistry Council, which lobbies for the companies that make all that plastic junk. And they're going to have to get out and talk to their neighbors and friends, inspiring yet more people to begin to question the old game. This is exactly what's happening in towns and cities all across the world, and they're winning. But can banning a few million plastic bags transform the goal of the game? By itself, no. But in combination with millions of others working on game-changing solutions that they care about, yes. Together, these solutions are beginning to turn the tide. As people build power to change the game, their citizen muscles grow. They work to ensure the local solutions they create get copied and scaled up. And when they see these solutions getting blocked by corporations with way too much influence, they team up with other solutionaries to fight for a real democracy by the people for the people. Gift cards will never do that, but thousands of citizen campaigns can. Whenever I'm asked to join in on a solution, I want to know if it's transformational. Will it change the goal? To figure it out, I use the word goal. I want to know that it, G, gives people more power, taking power back from corporations to build democracy. O, opens people's eyes to the truth that once basic needs are met, happiness and well-being don't come from buying more stuff, but from our communities, our health, and a sense of purpose. A, accounts for all the costs it creates, including the toll it takes on people and the planet. In other words, it internalizes costs instead of externalizing them, as most businesses do today. L lessens the enormous wealth gap between those who can't even meet their basic needs and those who consume way more than their fair share. When I see a solution that does all that, or can be redesigned to, I'm in. And they're popping up everywhere. Like the evergreen cooperatives in Cleveland, 
where worker owners are running green businesses, a laundry, a solar company, and a super productive urban farm that are healthy and safe. They provide secure jobs to people that the old game has left behind. We all know we need to get businesses out of our democracy, but cooperatives go even further and bring democracy into the businesses. Sustainable, democratic, and equitable, that's a game changer. Or in Capinori, a town in Italy where local citizens, working with businesses and governments, are not just seeking to manage waste better, but they're questioning the very inevitability of waste. They're promoting solutions to waste, not with expensive techno fixes, but by working together as a community to reclaim compost for the soil, to find reusable substitutes for disposable products, and then to put discarded material to good use. They've already reduced some waste streams by 82% while creating jobs and building social fabric. And how about the new trend of collaborative consumption, formerly known as sharing? Sharing may sound like the theme of a Barney song, but think about it. It's a huge challenge to the old game. It gets us off the treadmill of more, 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 conserves resources, gives people access to stuff they otherwise couldn't afford, and builds community. What's it look like? Bike share programs in major cities. Online platforms that let us share everything from our cars to our homes to camping gear. In my town, the public library system lends out tools. There's just no reason that every house needs its own power drill, creme brulee torch, scanner, wheelbarrow, bike pump when we can share. As transformational solutions like these gain traction, we will reach a tipping point if we keep focused on the new goal of better. Without a new goal, all the work we're doing to build a better future will be A, not enough, and B, really hard. Too much genius and focus will continue to go to solving problems like iPhone battery life, while the problems that threaten human life spin out of control. Five years ago, when we made the story of stuff, we started building a community of people who sensed that something was really wrong with this old game. We agreed there was a problem. Now it's time to build the solutions. Solutions that won't just change a few of the rules, but will change the entire game. So I've been futuring, which is a term I made up, um, uh, about three seconds ago. I've been futuring for about 20 years. And when I first started, I would sit down with people and I'd say, hey, let's, let's talk 10, 20 years out. And they'd say, great. And I've been seeing that time horizon get shorter and shorter and shorter. So much so that I, I met with a CEO two months ago and I said, look, look, you know, we started our initial conversation. He goes, I love what you do. I want to talk about the next six months. <laughs> we have a lot of problems that we are facing. These are civilizational scale problems. The issue, though, is we can't solve them using the mental models that we use right now to try and solve these problems. Yes, a lot of great technical work is being done, but there's a problem that we need to solve for a priori before if we want to really move the needle on those big problems. Short-termism, right? There's, there's no marches, there's no bracelets, there's no petitions that you can sign to be against short-termism. I tried to put one up and no one um, <laughs> signed, so weird. Um, 
but it prevents us from doing so much. Short-termism, for many reasons, has pervaded every nook and cranny of our reality. So I just want you to take a second and just think about an issue that you're thinking, working on. It could be personal, it could be at work, or it could be move-the-needle world stuff. And think about how far out you tend to think about the, the solution set for that. Because short-termism prevents the CEO from buying really expensive safety equipment. It'll hurt the bottom line. So we get the deep water horizon. Short-termism prevents teachers from spending quality one-on-one time with their students. So right now in America, a high school student drops out every 26 seconds. Short-termism prevents Congress, sorry if there's anyone in here from Congress, um, <laughs> or not really that sorry, um, from, <laughs> from putting money into a real infrastructure bill. So what we get is the I-35 bridge collapse over the Mississippi a few years ago, 13 killed. It wasn't always like this. We did the Panama Canal, pretty much have eradicated global polio. We did the Transcontinental Railroad the Marshall Plan. And it's not just big physical infrastructure problems and issues. Women's suffrage, the right to vote. But in our short-termist time, where everything seems to happen right now, and we can only think out past the next tweet or timeline post, we get hyper-reactionary. So what do we do? We take people who are fleeing their war-torn country, and we go after them. We take low-level drug offenders, and we put them away for life. And then we build McMansions without even thinking about how people are going to get between them and their job. It's a quick buck. Now, the reality is, for a lot of these problems, there are some technical fixes, a lot of them. I call these technical fixes sandbag strategies, right? So you, you know there's a storm coming, the levee is broken, no one's putting any money into it, so you surround your home with sandbags. And guess what? It works. Storm goes away, the water level goes down, you get rid of the sandbags. And you do this storm after storm after storm. And here's the insidious thing. A sandbag strategy can get you reelected. A sandbag strategy can help you make your quarterly numbers. Now, if we want to move forward into a different future than the one we have right now, because I don't think we've hit, this is not, 2016 is not peak civilization. I think there's some more we can do. But my argument is that unless we shift our mental models and our mental maps on how we think about the short, it's not going to happen. And so what I've developed is something called long path, and it's a practice. And long path isn't a kind of a one-and-done exercise. I'm sure everyone here at some point has done an off-site with a lot of post-it notes and whiteboards, and you do a long... <laughs> I was laughing. And you do... You do uh, no offense to the consultants in here to do that. Um, and you do a long-term plan, and then two weeks later, everyone forgets about it. Right? Or a week later. If you're lucky, three months. Um, it's a practice because it's not necessarily a thing that you do. It's a process where you have to revisit different ways of thinking for every major decision that you're working on. So I'm going to go through those three ways of thinking. So the first, transgenerational thinking. I love the philosophers, Plato, Socrates, Habermas, Heidegger. I was raised on them. But they all did one thing that didn't actually seem like a big deal until I really started kind of looking into this. And they all took 
as a unit of measure for their entire reality of what it meant to be virtuous and good, the single lifespan from birth to death. But here's the problem with these issues. They stack up on top of us, but because the only way we know how to do something good in the world is if we do it between our birth and our death. That's what we're programmed to do. If you go to the self-help section in any bookstore, it's all about you, which is great, unless you're dealing with some of these major issues. And so, with transgenerational thinking, which is really kind of transgenerational ethics, you're able to expand how you think about these problems. What is your role in helping to solve them? Now, this isn't something that just has to be done at the Security Council chamber. It's something that you can do in a very kind of personal way. So every、uh, once in a while, if I'm lucky, my wife and I like to go out to dinner, and we have three children under the age of seven. So you can imagine it's a very peaceful, quiet meal. <laughs> so we, we we sit down, and like literally, all I want to do is just like eat and chill, right? And my kids have a completely and totally different idea of what we're going to be doing, and so my my first idea is my is my sandbag strategy, right? It's to go into my pocket and take out the iPhone and give them Frozen or some other best-selling game thing,、um, and and then I stop, and I have to kind of put you know because I'm doing this, I have to put on this transgenerational thinking cap. I don't do this in the restaurant because it'd be bizarre, but I have to. <laughs> I did it once, and that's how I learned it was bizarre.、Um, and you have to kind of think, okay, I can do this, but what is this teaching them? So, what does it mean if I actually bring some paper or engage with them in conversation? It's hard. It's not easy. And I'm making this very personal. It's actually more traumatic than some of the big issues that I work on in the world. Is entertaining my kids <laughs> at dinner.、Um, But what it does is it connects them here in the present with me. But it also, and this is the the, the crux of transgenerational thinking ethics, it sets them up to how they're going to interact with their kids and their kids and their kids. Second, future thinking. When we think about the future, ten, fifteen years out, give me a vision of what the future is. You don't have to give it to me, but think it in your head and. What you're probably going to see is the dominant cultural lens that dominates our thinking about the future right now: technology. So when we think about the problems, we always put it through a technological lens, a tech-centric, a techno-utopian. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's something that we have to really think deeply about if we're going to move on these major issues, because it wasn't always like this, right? The the ancients had their way of thinking about what the future was. The church definitely had their idea of what the future could be, and you could actually pay your way into that future, right? And luckily for humanity, we got the scientific revolution. From there, we got the technology. But what has happened? And by the way, this is not a, a critique. I love technology. There's everything in my house talks back to me, from my children to my speakers to everything. <laughs> But we've we've abdicated the future from from the high priests in Rome to the high priests of Silicon Valley. And so when we think, well, how are we going to deal with climate or with poverty or homelessness? Our first reaction is to think about it through a technological, you know, a technology lens. And look, I'm not advocating that we go to this guy. This is not. And I love Joel. Don't get me wrong.、Um, but I'm not saying we go we go to Joel. 
What I'm saying is we have to rethink our base assumption about only looking at the future in one way, only looking at it through the dominant lens, because our problems are so big and so vast that we need to open ourselves up. And the, so that's why I do everything in my power not to talk about the future. I talk about futures. It opens a conversation again. So when you are sitting and thinking about how do we move forward on this major issue, it could be at home, it could be at work, it could be again on, this, on the global stage. Don't cut yourself off from thinking about something beyond technology as a fix, because we're more concerned about technological evolution right now than we are about moral evolution. And unless we fix for that, we're not going to be able to get out of short-termism and get to where we want to be. The final, telos thinking. This comes from the Greek root, ultimate aim and ultimate purpose. And it's really asking one question: To what end? When was the last time you asked yourself to what end? And when was the last time? And when you asked yourself that, how far out did you go? Because long isn't long enough anymore. Three, five years doesn't cut it. It's thirty, forty, fifty, a hundred years. In Homer's epic, the Odyssey, Odysseus had the answer to his what end. It was Ithaca. It was this bold vision of what he wanted to return to to Penelope. And I can tell you, because of the work that I'm doing, but also you know it intuitively, we have lost our Ithaca. We have lost our to what end. So we stay on this hamster wheel. And yes, we're trying to solve these problems, but what comes after we solve the problem? And unless you define what comes after, people aren't going to move. You know, the businesses—it isn't just about business—but the businesses that do consistently, who break out of short-termism, not surprisingly, are family-run businesses. They're transgenerational. They're telos. They think about the futures. And this is an ad for、uh, Patek Philippe. They're 175 years old. And what's amazing is that they literally embody this kind of long Pathian sense in their brand. Because I'll、uh, move out of the way. You never actually own a Patek Philippe, and I definitely won't.、Um, <laughs> unless someone wants to just like throw twenty-five thousand dollars on the stage,、uh, you you merely look after it for the next generation. So it's important that we remember the future. We treat it like a noun. It's not. It's a verb. It requires action. It requires us to push into it. It's not this thing that washes over us. It's something that we actually have total control over. But in a short-term society, we end up feeling like we don't. We feel like we're trapped. We can push through that. Now I'm getting more comfortable in the fact that at some point in the inevitable future, I will die. But because of these new ways of thinking and doing, both in the outside world and both and also with my family at home. And when I'm leaving my kids, I get more comfortable in that fact, and it's something that a lot of us are really uncomfortable with. But I'm telling you, think it through, apply this type of thinking, and you can push yourself past what's inevitably very, very uncomfortable. And it all begins really with yourself asking this question: What is what is your long path? But I ask you, when you ask yourself that now, or tonight, or behind the steering wheel, or in the boardroom. Or the situation room. Push past the long path. Quick. Oh, it's what's my long path? The next three years or five years. Try and push past your own life if you can, because it makes you do things a little bit bigger than you thought were possible. Yes, we have huge, huge problems out there. 
with this process, with this thinking, I think we can make a difference. I think you can make a difference, and I believe in you guys. We've just heard clips today starting with a video from Sustainable Human on YouTube explaining that we can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. Radio Who What Why parsed out the differences between pleasure and happiness. David Ketchum gave a guest sermon on progressive faith sermons about the world-changing benefits of living simply. The Minimalists on their podcast discussed the article Minimalism, Class, Fetishes, and the Fate of the Planet. We heard the video, The Story of Solutions, from The Story of Stuff Project. And finally, we just heard a TED Talk by Ari Wallach on how to plan for the very long term. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. This comment is really inspired by maybe the last 10 episodes uh, that you produced. I was thinking for some time about going back and listening to Hardcore History, Death Throes of an Empire, which is on the collapse and fall of the Roman Empire to Julius Caesar. And, um, when I went back to look for it, I remembered actually that I discovered the series, which is a total of five episodes, the total, I think they total something around 13 hours in all. But I discovered the series on your show in, I want to say, the latter part of 2010, maybe the beginning of 2011. And um, quickly uh, learned to love hardcore history with Dan Carly. So I wanted to remind the listener that um, as we are going through what we are going through with Donald Trump, that this may be something that they want to refer to. Again, it's called Death Throes of an Empire, and it's from Hardcore History with uh, Dan Carly. Thank you very much. Hi, Jay. It's Aaron from Philly. This isn't in reference to any specific episode, although it ties together a lot of my thoughts about both recent bonus episodes and main show episodes. It's just an analogy I wanted to share about how I think about the trouble that we're in in the United States in terms of just government and, and probably culture and a lot of other things. You know, we're stuck with a Second Amendment that doesn't serve any rational purpose in the modern world if it could arguably if it arguably ever served one and you know stuck with things like the electoral college and the the malapportionment of representation that goes back to you know trying to coddle the delicate feelings of slave owners back in the late 18th century and so forth and you know if you look around at even other countries whose constitutions we wrote after world war ii we didn't give them our form of government, and I think there's a reason for that. 
And that's where the analogy comes in is I think of it as, you know, we're trying to run a 21st century country on 18th century software, you know, 18th century operating system, if you will, you know, think about, you know, the idea is you get the most souped up possible, you know, computer that you can think of today with, you know, top of the line graphics and, you know, eight core processor. And I don't know what, clearly I don't know much about computers, you know, and you're trying to run it on, you know, MS-DOS. I mean, it just, there's no way that you're going to get anything workable out of that situation. So anyway, just thought I'd share one of my favorite analogies. Don't know where that takes us. I mean, you know, obviously the, the theory there is you'd have to rewrite the code. And I know there's definitely people out there talking about that. But anyway, that was it for now. As always, thanks for the show and stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called in to the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, today's topic was inspired by, I think, a combination of things. The first probably is the most recent members episode that Amanda and I recorded. Uh, That conversation very much sort of flows into what I'm about to talk about. So members will appreciate that continuity. Of course, everyone else should become members and go back and listen. So you can also appreciate that continuity. Um, But then also today's regular show topic, uh, it all get mixed together and, uh, and brought me back to uh, it's a sort of old analogy. This is like one of my classic analogies. And I have to admit, I haven't been uh, going to the analogy well as uh, as much recently, and and who knows maybe Aaron from Philly also played in the mix and and inspired me to uh, peer at an analogy to uh, to get some clarity on this. So a really brief recap of this old analogy uh, comes from there was a few years when I lived in Chicago, and. As many people know, if you know only one thing about Chicago, it's that it's windy. And so I would go on these bike rides along this long bike path in Chicago in the wind. And if you were to ask Google Maps, how long does it take to ride a bike from where I started to where I ended, it would say an hour. But it was usually wrong. Uh, Definitely, if it was windy, it was going to be wrong because on the way down, it took an hour and 15 minutes. And on the way back, it only took 45 minutes because that's how strong of an influence the wind was. It worked against me on the way down and was absolutely brutal, slowed me down a lot. And on the way back, I had this wind at my back that just made me feel like I was flying without any effort. And and the interesting thing about when you have the wind at your back is that you can't feel it. The moment you have the wind at your back, it feels like the air is still because you are traveling at the same speed as the air. So many years ago, as you might expect, I was having conversations about race and privilege and those sorts of things. I was trying to explain that concept through this analogy and said that wind in Chicago is analogous to the way privilege and oppression work differently on different people. Sometimes people have the wind blown in their face and it's working against them. And usually they know it. They, they, they can feel that wind and they know it's working against them. 
other people who have the wind at their back, I think very logically can't feel it at all. They have no idea it's there, have no idea that it's helping them along. So, so that, that's the old analogy. And to build on that, today's episode and, and in the sermon, when the guy was talking about mindfulness and how being more mindful actually very much changes the way you think about the things you're doing. And, and, and his example was that the more he knows about consumption, the more he knows about shopping and all of that, the less he wants to do it. And it's just sort of a natural byproduct. And it's sort of a way of lessening the way uh, those systemic forces impact you. So if you had no idea about any of the backstory, about any kind of shopping or basically anything we learned in today's show, if you didn't know any of that stuff, well, then you would be forgiven for being massively, massively influenced by marketing tactics that are targeted to influence you to think one way versus another. That's what they're there for. And in the most recent members show to sort of build this base that I'm going to tie all these things together in the most recent members show, Amanda and I talked about the different ways we talk about systems of oppression and for a couple decades or more now, there's been a lot of emphasis on saying that we are not victims, but we are survivors of incidences of sexual harassment or assault or rape or, you know, the whole, the whole gamut of things that that framing has been there to frame things in an empowering way to recognize the wrongs being done, but to not create a mental framework of victimhood so that we can take these feelings of empowerment and move forward and overcome, right? All very good, high-minded ideals and aspirations with exactly the right kind of targets in mind. What we talked about on the recent bonus show is that there's another aspect to that. It's not that that's wrong. It's not that the victimhood versus survivor dichotomy is wrong or being talked about in the wrong way or anything like that. But what we ended up talking about is that it's almost beside the point. There might be another mental framework that's more important than thinking of oneself as a victim versus a survivor. The other framework is whether or not you see the systemic forces at play or you don't. So in instances of sexism or, or sexual assault and rape and all of that, you may see an instance of harassment or abuse as just that, as an instance. Or you could see it as one moment in a long string of moments that create a system. In racism, you could see one slight as, you know, an, an offhanded case that may or may not be caused by racism, or, or you could have a very explicit moment of racism, and you could see it as just that. You could see it as a moment, or you could see it as one instance in a long, long string that together form a system. This is what we mean when we say systems of oppression. And I'm going to add to those categories what we're talking about today, the system of 
economics, the system of capitalism, and the way the oppression works is through the manipulation of what we want, what we don't want, how we see ourselves, uh, how we decide to live our lives. If you can even stretch your mind far enough to imagine what life would be like, who you would be as a person, if there was some sort of theoretical, perfectly neutral world where there was no sexism, there was no racism, there was no ageism, there was no ableism, there was no capitalism, there was no marketing, there was no, there was none of this, then who would you be at your core? What would you be if you didn't have these types of outside influences? And th- there are two choices. You can say either I would be exactly the same person I am now, and I think only a fool would say that, and the other option is to recognize that you would be somehow different. And if you recognize that you would be somehow different, then there is no escaping the fact that you're admitting that these systemic influences have changed you. And I point this out because some people like to point out, whether they believe it or whether they're being contrarian or whatever, they try to ignore the system. They try to claim that instances of sexism are only instances. They try to claim that instances of racism are only instances. And they even go so far as to say that you should not be influenced by marketing. And I think that only a person at the height of ignorance would come to that conclusion. And now to bring this back to my cycling analogy and and tie this all together. So in the analogy, the wind is the external influence. That's the system at work. If you're fighting against the wind, you're being oppressed by the system. If you are riding with the wind and it's actually aiding you, then you're being privileged by the system. And up to this point, the vast majority of the conversations being had have been about, on one hand, pointing out those privileges trying to shake people and get them to recognize that these privileges exist. And on the other hand, it's it's the survivor versus victim question and framing it in one of those two ways. And the fear is that if you see yourself as a victim, that you will crumble, that, that you will feel helpless and not be able to fight back. Whereas if you see yourself as a survivor, you you may be able to fight back. And what I think is more important than even that is however you want to frame it, the most important thing is to recognize that it is a system at play because that is the only thing that really gives you power. If you decide that you are a survivor of sexual assault, for instance— that's a step in the right direction. But if you don't see sexual assault as part of a system, then you may have the drive to overcome, but you you don't have the tools. You don't actually have the information you need to fight back in the way the fight needs to be waged. And to bring it back to today's topic, if you were to see consumerism and the unhappiness that stems from that as an individual fight for each of us to wage on our own, 
well, yeah, you may be better off. You may be able to fight that fight and overcome it, and and you can reduce your consumption and increase your savings rate and have less stress and have less stuff and have a smaller place to live and be happier and more content with less, which makes you more secure in a whole variety of ways. That might work for one person, but I would posit that if you don't see it as a system, if you don't see that fight as part of a system, then you're not going to be able to help with the fight in the way it needs to be waged. So in the end, the conclusion of the analogy is not that much different from the first time I said it. The, the point is that the system of influence is invisible. The wind is invisible, but you can feel it, and it makes an enormous impact. Uh, but to add on to that slightly, what, you know, what I was doing before was just emphasizing the need to recognize the system for what it is and how it works and how it influences you. What I can add to that today is that what it does to recognize these forces at play is, is it fundamentally helps you change the way you address them, both personally and collectively. So say you're riding a bike and you're in the wind and you have absolutely no idea what wind is. Think how frustrating it would be to be riding into the wind and have no idea what's holding you back and, and not understanding why you're struggling so much. To recognize what it is, it does two things. One, it changes your mental framework for the situation you're in. And that can make you feel better all by itself. You don't have to do anything differently, but to see it as something fundamentally different changes the way you see yourself in relation to your circumstances. But it does a second thing as well. It empowers you to make changes, again, both individually and as part of a collective, to address the scenario. And un unfortunately, this uh, I can't help but have this analogy uh, veer off into spandex, because that's why cyclists wear spandex. They know the wind is out there. They know they're going to be riding through it. If, if they just stopped at knowing that the wind was out there and just had that be like mentally helpful for them to know what was holding them back, but they still wore baggy clothes, I guess that's a little helpful mentally, but it doesn't actually help you get through the wind any better. But when you know what the problem is and you wear spandex and aerodynamic clothes, and you design your bike to be aerodynamic, it actually helps you in a concrete way. So unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, we now have to think of all of uh, the social justice advocates out there fighting against system of oppression as all wearing the analogous uh, version of spandex. But that's the point, is, is that uh, to, to understand the systems is to begin to understand how to address them. When you're a cyclist, you adjust to the wind by wearing spandex. When you're a social justice activist or just a person trying to make it through life, you have to understand the systems that you are working within and adjust to them in an analogous way. And to me, knowing that 
is the most important mental framing we can have. If you have thoughts on this, I would love to hear them. Comment line, as always, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook if you haven't deleted your account yet to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. 